0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. All right, good morning, C4 Church. All right, good morning and good morning to you online, whether you're joining us today from Romania, Brazil, somewhere in Europe or in Canada, or you're at a cottage, some of us are jealous. Good morning to you too. Uh, we're glad you're here. Well, I want to welcome you uh, to C4 Church this morning, and as most of you know, we're in our in our pre-summer series out of the book of Revelation. So if you've got a hard copy Bible, like we say, or if you've got your iPad or your iPhone, your Blackberry, we've got Wi-Fi in here, you can turn to Scripture. We're going to be, again, in the book of Revelation at the end of chapter 2. There's a story I used to tell when I was a youth pastor here, and I used it, I think, once years ago, but let me recycle it because it's applicable today. When I started working with teenagers uh, before I was in this church, on staff, that is, I used to work at a camp just north of here, And uh, one of the things we used to do as an activity during the week, I had uh, the ability to influence the youth staff from a spiritual perspective, but also ran the teen program is we would take students horseback riding. And uh, this is before helmets and other fun things like that, or smart things, I suppose. And so um, it was the first week of camp, and we had our first batch of teenagers, a group of teenagers signed up, and I took them horseback riding. Now, if you've ever horseback ridden in places around here, I'm just talking about South Ontario, you know how it goes, right? They're they're not that great. Most places aren't, at least, uh, for the novice. You show up, and there's all these horses that look like they're in retirement or they want to die. You know what I'm talking about? You know, they're called Sparkle, and I want more hay, and Starshine, but there's no star, there's no Sparkle. They want more hay, and they just want to die. So, you know, so you show up, and you've got these teenagers, and they're in awe because, you know, these horses are big, and we're urbanites, so we don't even know what a horse is. Anyway, so we're there, and we start signing up, and, and it's fine. And I'm just sort of giving the vibe off. I'm not impressed. And the guy who runs the place comes up and says, "Well, what's your problem?" I'm like, "Seriously, Sparkle, that's all you got for me, Sparkle? Maybe for these teenagers, but come on, I'm a man. Let's go." And he goes, "Okay," he says, um, "Are you an experienced rider?" "Oh yeah, yeah," I say, "I'm an experienced rider." "Yeah." Now he, when he's asking that, says, "You know, you've been riding for ten to fifteen years." In his mind, "I've ridden horses six times." So I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, the male vibrato thing that's just useless. Yeah, yeah, okay, bring it. So, fine. So he says, well, I got this smaller horse, but don't underestimate it. His name, I think, was like commander or general. That should have been a signal to me I was in trouble. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll take, I'll take the general. So uh, over he comes, and, it, you know, I've got it. I get, get on the horse, and the kids get on the horse. And you know how it goes, right? They get in a line, and these are the horses. They walk like this. You know, if there's water, they sit down, and you can't get them up, and they just sort of sit there. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. So I'm on the General. The kids are watching, they're in awe of me at 14 because I've got the general and I just start going back and forth and I love it. I've I've got one hand, you know, I'm riding with one hand because I'm so impressive and uh, two of us who are more experienced riders went for a gallop and came back. So it's fine. We're halfway through the experience and I look at the head of the guy, he's in the head of the line, I say, look, I want to take general for a, a real run. And he says, okay, if you want to do that. I said, yeah, yeah. So, great youth pastor. Okay, see you kids. I don't know who the stranger is, but I'm out. Okay, off I go. So I take general and we start going and, and he starts going quite quickly. I'm like, I can handle this. Uh, interesting. I'm now holding with two hands, not one, just as a side note. Uh, and we're going quickly. We go through a forest. I'm suddenly realizing there are these things called branches and they're coming at my face very quickly. I, I avoid them. It's fine. And then we break out into this open field. Now, at that moment, the horse suddenly decided something. He was going to show me why he was called the general. At that moment, he broke out into a full gallop. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen horses that go full gallop. You know when their, their, their legs extend almost horizontally? Well, we went. And at that moment, he was saying to me, you little, little boy, you, you little young blood. You think you're all that plus a bag of chips? I'm the general. You're the stupid one. Watch me go. Boom, we went. Now, I'm now sort of... I've got the adrenaline and the panic and the excitement all at once. But I'm holding on. Oh, God, please, please. I don't want to fall off, but I'm in control. Okay, so off we go. And I'm like, I'm fine. Because I can see a clear path in front of me. And it's a huge field. So I said, I'll slow the general down on the other side. So we're going. My adrenaline's pumping. This sucker is going. And suddenly unbeknownst to me and the horse, there's something in the middle of the path that I can't see. See, this has the illusion of everything being okay, but it's not. See, in the middle of this path that we're going down in this open field, there's a gully. A gully that you cannot see at all because the illusion is both sides are equal. So we're going, and we hit the gully. Before I can react or the horse reacts, he trips into the gully, the horse. At full gallop, he does a 180. He throws me. Now, you gotta remember, I used to be like 60 or 70 pounds heavier than I am today, okay? I go off this horse with all my weight and I fly into the side of that gully right here and right down the side of my body and I hit the side of that gully hard. The horse gets up and is like, please, please, and takes off. Weak, right? It's gone. I'm sitting there rolling on the ground. I'm completely out of breath. I, I don't know what's happened to me. He's gone somewhere in some force, and I'm rolling there. Well, five minutes later, who shows up? You sparkle, stardust, <laughs> right? The normal people. And the guy comes up, and they suddenly realize I'm in bad shape. They're like, oh, okay. Then I start feeling that hot, something all over my head. I realize that I've got a laceration in my head. And they're like, can you get up? Like, yeah, 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 I can get up. And then I I can't get up, and I realize something's wrong. And so they finally sort of pick me up. I sort of am able to get there. They get me in a car. They take me back to the camp. At one moment, I asked for Jack Daniels. I don't even know why I said that. I've never had Jack Daniels. Uh, It was a conservative camp. Half of them didn't laugh. If you're not laughing, breathe. It's okay. Uh, no, really, it's okay. And no, we're not serving that at the membership lunch later. It's okay. So, uh, no, so we're, we're there and, and, and I've got a huge laceration. I've lost, I've got all sorts of bruising. My collarbone is split right in half. And yeah, oh, thank you. I appreciate that love. Thank you. Thank you. Split right in half. And the crazy thing is the day before I was bragging to some people, I had never broken a bone in my body. Don't ever do that. And here I am sitting there, and we go to the hospital, and then I'm in a sling for half the summer, and people mocked me, and it was great. Now, you're saying, well, John, why are you sharing that story this morning, other than you were incredibly stupid? Well, let me tell you. Today's message is actually about thinking you're in control when you're not. Today's message is all about thinking that you can ride with one or two hands, and everything's going to be okay. But actually, if you keep going on this path, you're going to get thrown off. This is the story of a church that thought it was well, and things actually were good, and in some senses they were in control, but Jesus is about to show up and say to this community, stop, or you're going to get in serious, serious trouble. This is week five in our series out of the book of Revelation, and as we've been saying every week, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, was originally written to seven churches in seven different cities in now what's called modern Turkey. And Jesus comes up to every single church and speaks into their life. And so he comes to them like he comes to us to encourage, to confront, and to motivate. And he comes always, by the way, to give joy and offer more joy. Joy, let me remind you, is found when we know Jesus more and we, we see him in his fullness because then we're led to stronger worship. And joy is found when Jesus really tells us where we're all at. So we can be moved from where we are today to greater holiness and greater freedom. Because when we walk in God's will, it produces joy that cannot be bought, sold, or found outside of an encounter with the living God. The story of horseback riding is the story of falling, and the story of falling is where we go today. Today's city is Thyatira. It was founded by Seleucus I. Seleucius I was one of Alexander the Great's generals. When Alexander died, I believe in his mid-30s, his generals divided up his empire and even fought with each other. The city of Thyatira was a military outpost in Seleucius's new supposed empire. It would draw in the citizen soldiery of the people because it had no natural fortifications. And in 190 BC, the city actually falls to the Romans and becomes the first part of the kingdom of Pergamum. We talked about that two weeks ago. And then later becomes the province of Asia. Now this city out of the seven we've been talking about is the least important and the least remarkable. But what we need to focus on today as we hear Jesus speak is what they did for a living This city overall was a city of working people. It was blue collar in many ways. It was a city of trade. It was a city of merchants. The city was built on what they called guilds or what we would call the trades today. Wool makers, dyers of wool, linen workers, makers of outer garments, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. The economy at this time shaped the very nature and essence of the city. And these exports were known and they're still found today in archaeological digs. When we did the book of Philippians, do you remember we were talking about the birth of that church in Philippi, and one of the very first people that met Jesus there was a woman named Lydia. In Acts sixteen fourteen, it reads like this. One of those who was listening to Paul was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. This city was, again, a great exporter of everyday goods. But there's more going on to the story as we dive in. From a religious standpoint, this city was dedicated to the god called Apollo. He was viewed as the god of light and the god of the sun. He was connected to truth, prophecy, healing, plagues, music, and poetry. But the emphasis here in Thyatira was that he was the sun god. Apollo incarnate at the time was viewed as Caesar. Now you need to catch this. They actually believed that Caesar in Rome was the incarnation of Apollo on earth and he was the son of Zeus. So Apollo is the son of God, he is the light of the world, and Caesar is the incarnation of God in flesh. He would be worshipped at every single trade gathering, whether you liked him or not. Now, if you come from a Christian background at all, you can begin to see already the clash that's coming, the perversion, the demonic attempt to mock and distort truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is the one at Christmas we celebrate who is God in flesh. Not Apollo and not Caesar. Now watch carefully as we get into this to see how Jesus, in this vision that he gives to John to speak to these churches, how he reveals himself to these Christians, and why this revelation of Jesus at this moment is a direct attack on the man-made, demonically inspired religious and political ideals of Thyatira. Revelation 2.18 is where we're going to begin today. You can turn there, here or if you're online, wherever you are. To the angel of the church in Thyatira right. These are the words of, notice, the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is a description of Jesus, by the way. Jesus, not Apollo, nor the emperor of the time, is the Son of God. Now, interesting, I found out this week that the title Son of God for Jesus is only used once in the whole book of Revelation, and it's used here. Why? Because here is one of the only places where another religious system is trying to take his rightful title. Jesus begins the conversation by directly saying that the emperor is a liar and Apollo is a false deity. See, Jesus has a unique sonship to the father because he is the object of the father's love. We as modernists get confused when we hear the son of God and, that, and yet we teach that Jesus is God. We go, I don't get it. Well, in Hebrew, this is the idea, or in Greek, Since Jesus is the Son of God, he contains the essence or being of God. And since there is only one God in the whole universe, for he is the creator of the universe, if you share the DNA of God, you must be God, for there is no other. That is why time and time again, when Jesus declared he was the Son of God, or someone else did, within a Jewish context, people took up stones to kill him. Why? Because they understood he was claiming to be the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus begins the conversation with these Christians saying that he is the son of God. And then the description is given like this. His eyes are like blazing fire. This vividly reminds them and us of Jesus' penetrating power. He, like no one else, has the ability to see truth for what it is and falseness for what it is. He sees through wrong ideas, seductive arguments. And since he is God and since he is all-knowing and every present, he sees everything. It says that his feet are like burnished bronze. This, of course, is foreign to us sitting here this morning. The image was first seen in Revelation 1, that grand, grand, full kaleidoscope image of Jesus that started the whole book. It reads like this in Revelation 1.15. Jesus' feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. Out of his mouth came a double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining... In all of its brilliance. Now again to the original audience. They would get this on two levels. This city was known for using fire. To make metallic products. Like mixing copper and bronze. And metallic zinc. They would relate because of their jobs. To the power and the brightness. And the heat and the purity. And most importantly catch this. The beauty and the danger. Of working with fire and forged metal. Many people hearing this were working in bronze factories and were working with copper. And when they heard this image and they read this image, they would immediately feel the heat, the extreme heat when they dealt with metal. And they were suddenly realizing that the God they worshipped, this radiates from him. His feet are overwhelming enough. And remember, at this moment, Apollo claims to be the sun god. But Jesus, who is the true living God, it says here, his face shines like the sun. And when you look upon Jesus in his glorified state, pure light radiates from his being. He is the very essence of power, purity, holiness, all-knowingness. Jesus Christ, who is glorified, is both justice, mercy, terror, and beauty. In one word, Jesus is Lord. Amen? This is a direct assault against what others were teaching. Now again, as he's done in every church, Jesus shows up to his people, and with absolute clarity and absolute authority, he begins to speak into the life of a normal church, telling them where they're going well and where they're about to fall off. He says, so you're living in a city of merchants. Hear what I need to say to you this morning. Verse 19. I know your deeds, Jesus said to them, your love and your faith your service, your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Basically, Jesus shows up and says, you can put on a show for anyone else, but I actually know the state of your Christian life. If you are a Christian, he says, I know it. I know your deeds. And what a great list they have. Jesus shows up to the church and says, you love people, and you love me. It's not just a past thing. This love for Jesus is growing in fervor and intensity. They're loving Jesus more and more, and that means that life and family and money and sex and history, although fine, are becoming secondary. He says you're growing in faith. You're growing in the most holy faith that you've committed yourself to. You're understanding more and more about me, about Scripture, about theology. You're growing in a Christian worldview. Your glasses are getting clear. And you're growing an informed trust of me. He says you're serving. You're serving each other. You're using your spiritual gifts. You're loving each other. You're serving the poor. You're not giving up. You're persevering. You are doing more than you did at first. Christ comes and commends the church at Thyatira for a life of active service, active service and love and perseverance. They're working out their faith over the long haul. Actually, their obedience is walking in the right direction. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, and some of you are, Would you not want to hear this from Jesus if he showed up in your bedroom? I sure would. He's saying, I'm so happy, I'm so impressed, I'm so joyful. Thank you for your service, your love. Thank you that your faith is not going backwards. You're not reverting. You're moving in the right direction, even in a difficult situation. But in the middle of that growing faith, there's something wrong. The gully is about to hit this church, and they don't know it. There's something corrosive that's eating out underneath their faith. Something that could actually break apart all that has been done right so far. It is the power of false teaching or false understanding. In the local church, there was a rival of Jesus. There was actually a rival to John, as as Joanna described it a few weeks ago, as almost like a bishop or an over-leader of all the churches. Hear the words of Jesus when he begins a rebuke. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you, Jesus says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idol. So once again, we're at the same problem. In Ephesus, the Nicolaitans were there. In Pergamum, there was a guy named Balaam. And here now we have a woman named Jezebel. And understand why this is significant. Remember, we govern our lives. We live our lives, not just out of emotion. We govern our lives out of what we think. Much of the time, many of us never even reflect on what we truly believe. But trust me, we all act out what we believe. Truth or error can send a church or a person down a great path or a terrible path. And Jezebel shows up and she's beginning to teach these two things. Now, the original story of Jezebel is an old one. It comes from the Old Testament, out of the time of the kings. The story of Jezebel, the original one, comes out of 1 Kings 16, 29. It reads like this, In the 38th year, Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Now remember, these are God's people, the Hebrew people. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of God than any of those before him. Now, if you want to go home and read Jerry Springer times 100, read the book of Kings. I'm serious. Like terrible, bizarre, weird, violent, sexual stuff all off happening. And this guy comes along and he, outdos, he outdoes all of them. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, you can read about that, but he also married, here it is, Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal, that's a false god, and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal and he built it in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than the kings of Israel that all succeeded or were before him. So Jezebel's plan, 2000, or lot longer, sorry, a lot longer ago than that, was successful. She was not a Hebrew. She was not part of God's people. She seduced this king, she married into God's chosen people. She introduced these false gods and all the practices that went with them, which include a lot of sexual and food stuff that God had said no to. So she combined sex, food and other gods, and then she says, "Well, you can have your other God if you want it also." She was involved also, if you read the story, of trying to kill God's very prophets. Jezebel, later in history, just like Balaam, becomes a code word. And the code word is for all false teachers who come to the local church and say, you can be okay with God, the God you supposedly know and love, and still live any life you want because he loves you so much. Now in this case, this woman who is labeled Jezebel was a real prominent woman within the church of Thyatira, who, like her Old Testament counterpart, was influencing the people of God to forsake their loyalty to Jesus by promoting, here's the fun word, tolerance to pagan practices. She was coming to the local church, and she was saying, you get to do two things, and it's really exciting. You still get to go and eat feasts in front of idols, and you still get to get it on any way you want. And Jesus says, it's okay. Now again, this is very important that we get history, because history is king. One historian puts it this way, the problem centered for Christians on those trade guilds in Thyatira. For a person to maintain their livelihood in that city, you had to have a membership in a guild. It was a virtual necessity. For Christians then, the problem was this mandated participation in these feasts, which actually involved worshiping other gods and offering meat to idols. And since the patron gods of the guilds were always worshipped at the feast, the Christian had a decision. Not only that, a lot of times these feasts got, well, just a little out of control. And so they actually involved a lot of sexual immorality. So at these trade guilds, the carpenters would gather, or the wool dyers, would, or whoever, they would gather together. And as before they had their strategic plan meeting, they would actually worship a god. And they'd eat a meal in his honor or in her honor. And at certain things, well, it just became an orgy. And now you've got Christians and they're starting to refuse to participate in these feasts because it would compromise their faith. But now they start facing the anger from friends and family and actually it had economic repercussions. They could lose their jobs. In Pergamum, we found it two weeks ago, similar situation. People were being murdered for this. In Thyatira, you could lose your job. Now Jezebel comes along and says, listen everyone, if you're a Christian, no problem. You can take place, at least in the guild feast, because, you know, it's it's religious, yes, but it's just being a good citizen. And as a Christian, it's your responsibility to be a really good citizen. So she would teach in the church, idols were nothing anyway, you know that, and you're called to be good citizens, so Jesus is going to have no problem with you just doing this. She was really saying this, listen closely, this is it. As long as you don't believe it's true, you can do anything you want. As long as you don't believe it's true, it's not going to hurt you. It's like when I hang out with Christians, right? And they say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I play the Ouija board. It's made from Hasbro. It's not going to hurt me. Are you joking me? Well, you, you think that you can play with fire and with God and it's not going to touch you? Oh, I, I can mess around and be just fine with it, Really? And where do you find that beyond John three sixteen? Oh, you don't. See, this is the heartbeat where she starts saying, there is a way to play both sides. So you've got in Thyatira, Apollo, Caesar being worshipped, food to idols, and sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is an interesting word we don't use very much in our culture. It's a catch-all word in Hebrew and Greek. It simply means this. It's any act, consensual or otherwise really, but mostly consensual, that is done outside of the biblical definition of marriage. It goes beyond adultery. It's saying that anything that God asks us not to do, Because A, we need to worship him with our bodies. And B, he he knows better because he doesn't want us to be hurt. He says that's sexual immorality. And Jezebel is asking and actually commanding Christians to actually participate in it. So you've got Christians coming to church who's saying Jesus is Savior and Lord and taking communion and serving the poor and growing in their faith. And at the same time, they're starting to flirt with this. Now this is when the horse is about to fall and they're about to fall off it. Actually, things at this moment in this passage get really scary. We're about to see Jesus in a way most of us rarely think about him. But I remind you as I I read this, that the Jesus we just sang to this morning, the Jesus we gave to this morning, the Jesus that we love in this church, is the Jesus I'm about to read from because this is himself revealing himself to the church. He says, I have given this woman, verse 21, time to repent of her immorality, religious and sexual. But she is unwilling." Now Notice this very carefully. Notice the love of Jesus. Notice the kindness of Jesus, the awe of God. He gives her time. He stands in all of his glory. His eyes burn with fire. He is like living light, and yet he extends his hands out, ready to forgive this woman, even though she is leading his family away from him. She, she is actually given the option of grace. And this is actually the great image to the world where Jesus comes and says, there is no freedom and joy in what you spend your life doing. But there's freedom in me because I'm your creator and you're made to know me. But this woman makes the decision she will not submit to Jesus and his views. Actually, she thinks she knows better than the one she supposedly represents. And she rejects slavery to Jesus because she thinks she'll run her life better. So Jesus comes and he says these next words. I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Uh Uh-oh, we just moved from G to R in our understanding of Jesus. Jesus shows up and says, I take this unbelievably serious. And remember again, when it says adultery, it's not just talking about sexual morality; It is talking about her teachings and participating in compromise. Now, this bed is not a funeral bed, nor is it the dining couch of the guild feasts. It's a bed of sickness and pain. And, of course, the irony here is the very place where adultery is promoted is a bed. And so he says, I'm going to come to the very place you promote your religious and your sexual worldview, and I'm going to deal with you. Now, notice at this moment, even now, there is time to turn. This is wrath and mercy. Those who have so unreservedly embraced her beliefs uh, of her spiritual mother can deal with Jesus and find joy and freedom. God comes and he says, there's always time for mercy and love, for I am a God of holiness and love, and I desire your freedom. And then he says these words, rarely preached at churches, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searched the hearts of minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. If you know the book of Acts, this is, like, this is like Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and right in the middle of a church service they were struck dead. This is showing you something very significant in me. Number one, her influence went beyond that local church to others. She had influenced many churches. And so Jesus is coming to deal with his church. He says, listen, I know what you do in public and I know what you do in secret. Because my eyes are fire, I see all. Jesus says, I will repay you. This is my house, these are my children, this is my movement, these are my churches. They aren't yours, Jezebel. I don't think sometimes we, even as Christians, understand the severity that Jesus thinks about his body and his bride. God is jealous for us. Not jealous in the weird psycho-stalking way. He is jealous, as a good husband is, of his wife or wife. He guards the relationship because it is beautiful, holy, given. It is something that they have agreed to. And now this imposter has come and is trying to divide the marriage. And Jesus comes and says, don't you dare touch my bride. This is my woman, not yours. So he comes. And then he says in verse 24, now to the rest of you in Thyatira. To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned, interesting, Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Now catch this. When we hear the deep secrets of Satan, we all think suddenly of really weird rituals and Satanism and we're going to go watch a movie at AMC. No, no, no. That's not what this is. The deep secrets of Satan are usually much more seductive than we want to make them. It's compromise. You can do anything you want with your bodies because, by the way, she would teach, you've got fire insurance anyway. You're going to heaven. Jesus loves you. You're a Christian, so don't worry about it. You can live any way you want, and this is what she teach, because your soul is okay, and what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's only the spiritual side of you that matters. Satan came to Adam and Eve at the beginning of time and said, what did God really say to you? And the deep secrets of Satan began there. Doubt about what God has already expressed as good, beautiful, joyful, freedom giving. The deep secrets of Satan is not some act done in secret. It is the teaching that you can play God while you supposedly worship Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I'm not going to impose any other burden on you. The burden I've already given you is to keep going, grow in love. Grow in faith, grow in service, persevere, reject all this other stuff. This is a call to think right, act right, and live right. It's actually a call against hypocrisy. Be biblical in everything you think through if you are a Christian. Live as Jesus did if you're a Christian. It's about holiness and love and grace and truth. The only burden I give you is walk out in the boring, everyday, normal Christian life we're all called to. To him or her who overcomes. And does my will to the end, verse 26, I will give authority over nations. Jesus will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. Now, again, they made pottery here. This would make great sense to them. This is an exact quote out of Psalm, I think, 2, about the coming of Jesus. And the description here is this. What Jesus is saying is, remain faithful to me. And not this other stuff, because let me tell you something. When Jesus comes back for the second time, we celebrate two comings of Jesus. The one we celebrate at Christmas is the first advent. The second advent that's coming is when he will come and he will end time. And all people will meet Jesus and submit. He is going to dash or break any nation that opposes him. He comes as warrior and king. And he says to these Christians, living with the option of compromise in the middle of their city, and remember, they could lose their jobs or economic status for just obeying him. He says, hold on, for when I come back, I will make all things right. And Jezebel won't be around, and Caesar most definitely will not be Lord, because he never was. Apollo's gone, I'm coming, and I'm going to give you authority you've never had. And then Jesus says what he says at every church. For he or she who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, they and we are put in a place. Whether we've been Christians for decades or Christians for years or months or we're genuinely seeking or we're not, all of us are now put in this place. So many of us can hear, but very few of us listen. Like I preached a few weeks ago, listening involves intention and intention involves action. So the question is, what was Jesus saying to them? And what is he saying to us? And the answer is this. You cannot handle the horse of living between two worlds. You will fall and you will get hurt or worse. The heart of Jesus is well done. And his rebuke to this church is simple. He was calling normal Christians in Thyatira to be kind and gracious, but to never compromise on Jesus or his call for our life. Our culture all around us, listen closely please, our friends, our family, those on TV, blogs, Twitter, Facebook, and many that run our country have one word on their lips these days. It's the word tolerance. Now, we as Christians hold this virtue very high when you mean, or when you say tolerance, you mean peaceful coexistence, loving everybody, and living as a good citizen. Christians should be exemplary citizens. But that's not what tolerance means anymore. It used to be be a good neighbor. It used to mean when I disagree with you in my country or beside you as a, as a neighbor, I can still be charitable. I can disagree with you, but I still can hang around you, though our differences are significant. But this is not what tolerance means socially anymore in our culture. It now is a call to accept what others say, and you may never disagree. And when you disagree, you are actually given a very serious cuss word in our culture. You are called intolerant. You are hateful, you're ignorant, you're backward, you're dangerous to the fabric of society. See, tolerance in its new form, not its old form, but its new form in Canada and even in the West is now actually forcing Christians into a space where we will have to choose between Jesus and Jezebel and Jesus and Caesar, and actually the ground is getting smaller and smaller and smaller For one person, one scholar wrote these, for some people today, tolerance in the new definition is the only real virtue left, and intolerance is the only real vice left. C.K. Chesterton, that great British Christian thinker, said tolerance is the virtue of a man without convictions. And Martin Luther, the great reformer, I think caught the Christian notion so right, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. See, what often now goes under the banner of tolerance in our society really is what we call as Christians, syncretism. That is the idea of taking Christianity and our love of Jesus and syncing them with opposing beliefs. It is Jezebel's call to live between two worlds. Modern tolerance, listen to me please, if you are a Christian, modern tolerance is an idol that you cannot allow to have more power in your life than Jesus. It cannot have more power in your life than Scripture. If you are a Christian, you have willingly given yourself to Jesus. Tolerance is secondary to the lordship of Jesus. So like I did two weeks ago, speaking out of uh, the Pergamum situation, let me speak about the Thyatira situation in almost the exact same way. Because the issues being presented at Thyatira are the same of Pergamum. So everyone just hold on. You will know how close Jezebel is in your bed or getting into bed with you When you truly take a moment to think about your views of Jesus, eternity, sex, and money. Let me start with Jesus again. Your view of Jesus and his unique work will tell you if Jezebel's in bed with you. You cannot reduce Jesus to who you want him to be. No one in this room or online likes when someone puts words in their mouth. Anyone? Does anyone like that? It's awful. It's the most frustrating thing. And yet this happens with Jesus time and time again. Jesus is not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, not just a profound thinker, not just one of a few that changed the nature of history. You cannot, here it is, reduce Jesus to your version of love. So many say that Jesus is love. This is the catchword now in our culture, religiously. So you have to accept everything. You can never judge anyone because Jesus is love. Well, I would like to remind all of us that Jesus, for example, with the woman at the well, showed profound love, sat with her, offered her eternal life asked her to go get her husband she said well i don't have well he says yeah actually you've had five A- and she said how do you know that she he says, well i'm the messiah the son of god and and she meets jesus and she's revolutionized by jesus and she's loved by jesus but what was jesus's parting words go and what sin no more Jesus can never become the poster boy for modern tolerance because he always connects love with holiness, grace with truth. He connects love with boundaries. We call this repentance and relationship. So many times, even when it comes to the sexual battle, people say, well, Jesus didn't talk on this or that subject, so it's fine. Well, let me remind you that Jesus claims to be the God of the Old Testament and the Spirit of God that inspired Scripture is bound with him too. Jesus has said everything on every subject. He is not the modern tolerance person. He is a person who demonstrates true love. You must hold fast if you are a Christian to the truth that Jesus is fully human in God. That he's the only incarnation of God in human history because that's what he claimed that he is the only one who can forgive sins, that he physically died, he physically rose again, that there is only one path, road, and experience to God. There is no way to know God, experience God, or connect to God except through Jesus because he's the only one that's dealt with every barrier between us and God because he is God. Forgiveness of sin, all humans will give an account to him. One wrote, many non-Christians or Christians no longer deny the possibility of miracles in a postmodern culture. Or even Jesus being a way to God. But to them, the Christian way is only one way, of course. Rome uh, was very similar. Rome and Thyatira and other places was tolerant of religions as long as they did not make a universal claim that might actually compete with the loyalty of the state. They used to have a phrase about religions that did this. They said, such a religion must be conquered or die. Now, a praiseworthy aspect, he writes, of modern pluralism is that it actually gives voices to minorities and that's very important. But the danger of modern pluralism, like in the Roman Empire, is that it inadvertently appears to lend credibility to the claims of what we call philosophic, moral, and religious relativism. Here's an interesting statistic from down south. 72% of Americans between 18 and 25 do not believe there's anything called absolute truth. Half of those in the survey claim to be born-again Christians. Much of our society is so absolutized relativism. And by the way, isn't that funny? Isn't that oxymoron? There is no such thing as absolute truth. Just asking. Okay. They have so relativized it that basically our society teaches that everyone is right unless you claim to be right. Everyone is right unless you claim to be right and then you're intolerant. But our movement is based now on in an intolerant statement. Jesus came and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. Peter said it best in Acts 4.12, this Galilean fisherman who actually rejected Jesus a few times and then really met him and, and preached "This salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to people by which they can be saved. So here's my question this morning. And again, this is to you who claim to be Christians. How close is Jezebel to your bed? Do you really believe in the uniqueness of Jesus? Do you believe he is the only way to heaven? Do you believe that you can use him as a poster boy or do you allow scripture to define him because he allows scripture to define him because he authored it? Here's the second thing. You will know how close you are to Jezebel with your view of mission. Listen closely. Think on every person you've ever seen. You can't do it. Do you really believe that every person in this room Every person online right now, every person on earth at this moment will live forever. Do you really believe that since we're made in the image of God, we will spend eternity with God or separated from God by our choice? See, if you lose the uniqueness of Jesus and the unique work on his cross, if we lose the reality that there is a great new heavens and a new earth, and there is a place called hell, if we forget that the kingdom of God is first found in the heart and then in society, we as Christians will lose our motivation to pray, to give, to love the poor, to preach and share the good news of Jesus because we don't really believe that what Jesus said is going to happen is going to happen. We will never sacrifice our reputations, our families, our times to introduce people to Jesus because we, we know that He deeply loves them if we do not believe what's coming is really coming. And Jezebel is whispering in your ear. What's the last words of Jesus? Matthew 28 All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all people groups, all families, all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now let me bring this home. I love this reflection. He said, few Christians are tempted to question Christians' teachings like Jesus is God or the resurrection. But relativism, as we talked about, has become so popular that the idea that there is an absolute necessity of faith in Jesus for salvation has become an uncomfortable position for Christians to hold. And yet he reminds us over 19 centuries of Christian missionary activity. I'm talking about just people sharing the message of Jesus. Hinges on that belief alone. And yet that is the most offensive thing about our faith. If you do not believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you will lose your motivation to reach 10,000 for this church or anything else because you don't really believe that he's the only gate. And since there's other gates, we can all just get along. And Jezebel shows up and says, it's just fine. It's not. It doesn't matter how nice people are, or moral, or kind, or religious. Lots of us before we were Christians were good, kind, religious people. But we all need a savior to deal with our sin. We need someone to walk into our story to deal with us, because we don't have the power. The great heartbeat of our movement is to restore a lost relationship we had in Eden because God is holy and we need a Savior. In Jesus, justice and mercy meet to overcome our sin, the world and the evil one. We will never share the story of Jesus, give our time, money, our reputations. We will not even be open for Jesus speaking to some of us to call us into full-time evangelism if we do not believe eternity is real and Jesus is the only way. Jezebel comes and says, don't worry about that stuff. And Jesus comes and says, worry about it, because it ripples into eternity. Your view of Jesus tells you if you're compromised. Your view of eternity really tells you as a Christian. And I want to say this again. This is to Christians if you're compromised. The third one is sex. Like I said two weeks ago, and I want to say it again, we're married to Jesus as Christians in the sense that we have a covenant with him. How we think or act with our bodies matters. I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I want to say this this morning. Sex is great. I, I said it. Yes. It's a great thing. My boss invented it. He has no problem with it. If you're married, get it on. This is good. The problem is, is something else. I'm not saying that we can't be tempted. I'm not even talking about how we're sexually inclined one way or another. Like I said two weeks ago, struggle, orientation, and temptation is never the issue for a follower of Jesus. It is when we as Christians start justifying and affirming acts outside of what Jesus has declared and scriptures declared as right or wrong. I'm talking about justifying sexual acts and saying, well, it's just fine. We may never justify for ourselves or others acts the Bible are clear on. You will know that you have crossed the line into compromise when again you start saying, well, God would never deny my natural desires, or I don't need to explain myself to you, or God made me this way, or as long as we're consenting, it's just fine, or, or if it doesn't hurt anyone, what's, what's the problem? Now, I want to say this clearly like I did two weeks ago. That may be the foundation of our sexual understanding as a culture, But we as Christians, I, John Thompson, cannot say that anymore because I have given myself to Jesus and I've decided that he's a better master and I'm his slave. The world can say what they want and that's fine. I don't expect any person who does not love Jesus to act like a Jesus follower. And if you do as a Christian, stop it. You've got to be in love with Jesus to obey him. Remember the Ten Commandments? Start with, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments, their essence are worship, it's relationship, it's love. I willingly do this because I love you because you've loved me first. I have decided, and many of you have decided, that Jesus is a better master than us because he is love and holiness, and we have declared that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And since that is our truth, we can never say we can do what we want sexually because he's in charge and we're not. That's why Paul, and let me repeat it again, wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Jesus? Shall I then take a member of Jesus and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? This is talking about a religious prostitute at one of those festivals. For it said, the two become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality, opposite of Jezebel. All other sins a man commits outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? And and like I said last time, let me do it again. Here's the great dividing line for Christians and the rest of our culture. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Honor God with your body. The essence of the grand debates that take place in our culture, most of them are a waste of time. Because the Christians, I want to say this publicly as a pastor, I have no time for a culture war. No time. This is given to us who follow Jesus willingly. The amount of money and time that's spent politically by Christians is a waste of time because at the essence we are saying as Christians one thing. Because I have chosen Jesus I willingly do this. I don't own my body. The abortion debate, the sexual orientation debate, divorce and remarriage in certain cases, it goes on and on and on. Are these complex? They are. Are there exceptions? Scripture speaks about them. Do we need to be thoughtful, loving, kind, not jerk Christians? Yes, but at the heartbeat of our movement is this. Hear it clearly. We don't own our body. The world can say they do, but we don't. Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So at the heartbeat, what you have here is you will know how close Jezebel is to you by your view of Jesus, your view of mission and eternity, your view of sexuality, and lastly, money. We live in a culture of material prosperity. We do. Human rights, and and listen, these are good things. And within measure, they're all fine. But when material prosperity becomes most important, it's sin. I found this quote two weeks ago, and I want to read it again. Self-possession, not demon possession, is the greatest danger facing us as human beings. It is hard for Christians in any generation, but ours more, To move from feeling they need to be in control of their lives and money to entrusting themselves completely to God's mercy and his will. Jesus comes to the church in Thyatira and he is deeply excited about their movement. Why? Because they're moving in the right direction. He's excited because they're growing in faith and love and perseverance and serving. They're the real deal. They do love Jesus. They're growing. But Jesus comes and says, you cannot be more tolerant than me. In the Ephesian church, Jesus showed up and says, you know what makes me angry about you, Ephesian church? You think everything right, but you don't care about people at all. You're the most loveless people. You don't love me very much, and you definitely don't love others. It makes me angry. He comes here and says, you love so much, you have no standards anymore, and it makes me just as angry. See, that's the tension. Some of you live in Ephesus, and some of you live in Thyatira, and Jesus lives in the middle. So here's how we're going to end. As Nikki comes up, and we do this last song in response, Jesus comes to do these things and speak these things to us, not because he's angry, in the sense of he's a thug. Jesus doesn't come to beat us up as a church. He comes to speak to us because this is about our freedom. And as we, as a culture, become more and more everything, you as a Christian and we as a church, with gentleness and respect and, and being very thoughtful. We need to be deeply thoughtful Christians. Most Christians, honestly, publicly, are not thoughtful. I don't just mean kind. I mean thinking. We are going to have to start saying, even if it costs us, Jesus is the only way. We, can, we, we do believe that Jesus is the way to encounter God, and we'd like to share that with you if you're open. We are going to have to start more and more orienting our lives scripturally, uh, sexually around scripture. And we are going to have to get more and more serious about how God controls us in the sense of we need to start laying down our children, our husbands, our wives, our family, our reputation, our businesses, and obeying Jesus in those and saying, we don't own them, we're only stewards. Because let me say this, and this is where I end. The more we submit to the lordship of Jesus, the more joy we will have. Because with Jesus, there is freedom. What was Jesus' promise to us? My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Is anyone weary? Is anyone's soul tired? Come to me. I will refresh you. But you cannot, you cannot yoke yourself or connect yourself with Jesus and still play the other side. This is an invitation for C4 Church continually to get serious about the lordship of Jesus in this church, because as this happens in our life, there will be joy because we will know Jesus, we will know our security in his eternity, we will tell others out of the right motive, we will live lives that reflect him sexually, and our monetary ways will change, and we will be authentic. And if the world wants one thing, it wants an authentic church. Don't you agree? So let's pray. And ask him to do this, and then we'll end. So Lord Jesus Christ, difficult. And we're in all sorts of backgrounds here and online. Like, we got certain people who are deeply seeking you, and this is just, oh, this crashes into everything. Others of us have just met you, but starting to realize the cost of being in relationship. Others of us have been Christians for so long, and we're going, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that I'd fallen off the horse, and I think I have. So just simply, I ask Holy Spirit, Keep working this out in our church because it produces joy. I pray, Lord, that if some of us have wrong understandings of Jesus, that we repent and we get joy. If some of us have started doubting the uniqueness of Jesus or forgotten the implication of eternity, change that in us. Give us motivation. For others of us, Lord, we want to admit we're all sexually broken as people in this auditorium and online, all of us in different ways. I mean, all of us have history. But our request is, Jesus, that you would give us the power, the will, and the want to live sexually right. And lastly, we lay down our money, our retirements, our homes, our children if we have them, or our relationships, our reputations, and say, what do you want us to do with them? Because eternity is at stake. Jesus, come and keep speaking into this church. Keep bringing hope and life because we want not only ourselves to grow deeper, we want many, many more in this church and other churches to introduce others to Jesus. Jesus, renew us. Jesus, revive us. Jesus, cause an awakening. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, CruthersCreek.ca.